0: Now, what a welcomed promise this must have been to that small remnant of Jews living in this dark region, especially those who were now under the yoke of the Assyrians. All of those who had placed their faith in a merciful and gracious God who alone could pardon their iniquities. And there were Jews that were that way in that day. It was always a remnant. Most of them, of course, were not that way. And certainly this glorious light that was promised appeared some 700 years later. And we know it appeared because now we can look back in history and see it. But I want you to notice something as we look over at verse 6. And here's where we really want to camp this morning. The Lord here in verse 6 reveals to Isaiah... Even more about this light to come in verse six, we read for a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. He goes on to say there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Now, dear friends, here is the very heart of what we call Christmas. Something that the world resents. Now, I want to give you a technical note here. It's very fascinating as we look at the testimony of our sovereign God to see the utter confidence that we can have in the prophet's words. As in all of the succeeding verses, what we see here is in the Hebrew, the verbs are all in the past tense. And yet all of the prophecies are future. Well, that's curious. In fact, their literal renderings in the Hebrew would be a child has been born, a son has been given, and the government has rested on his shoulders, and his name has been called. Well, why would the Spirit of God present such prophetic truth in the past tense? Well, dear friends, it's very simple. And I want you to hear this because God's predicted plans are so certain they can be described as if they had already occurred. And we see this, by the way, in many, many passages throughout Scripture. And beloved, we must never forget, as the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 11, 1, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The assurance, the absolute confidence of the things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. So. Isaiah reveals these amazing truths to the people of that day and also to us in this day. And it's interesting that he does so with no explanation as to the interval of time. He had no idea that this light was going to shine. This child was going to be born, that a son would be given 700 years later. The prophet many times will do this. All of the prophets would do this. By the way, this is a common prophetic device known as prophetic foreshortening. And I know it's a bit technical, but I feel it's important for you all to know these things. Prophetic foreshortening. And here's how this works. The prophet would all, all, often reveal, shall we say, event A and event B and event Z with no idea of what would intervene between those particular events. And what would happen is the prophets often would look ahead and they would envision two advents of Christ as if they were two mountain peaks with a valley in between. But all they could see, even as you would think about it, if you looked at mountain peaks, all you can see are two mountain peaks. You, you, you don't know what's really in between. You have no idea of the size of the valley in between. And such is the case here. Isaiah could see peak number one, and that peak would be the birth of the Messiah, the son that would be given. But behind that peak, he could also see another peak, which would be peak number two, referring to the second coming. That peak when the government would be on his shoulders and he would reign on David's throne eternally and so on. Now, you must think of this as a partial, final fulfillment, not a double meaning. That's not the point here. One event is simply a harbinger of the next event, an even greater, more climactic event. So from our perspective now, we can look back over the annals of history and we can see the time interval between the two valleys. Isaiah couldn't see that. We can see the time interval between peak one and peak two, which is roughly 700 years. Or I should say, between the time when he first announced that and the first peak. But now, between peak one and peak two, the second coming of Christ, we're literally living in that valley. We don't know when that's going to come, but we know that it will come. We are awaiting, shall we say, the next peak that Isaiah saw. So, 700 years before Christ, Isaiah saw two mountain peaks of precious hope. A child was going to be born, one who would someday rule from the throne of David in an everlasting kingdom, as God had promised David in 1 Samuel 7. And Isaiah also spoke of this child, by the way, in chapter 7 and verse 14. There we read, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name. Emmanuel, which means God with us. <clears throat> now may I pause for a moment and remind you of some other key Old Testament prophecies that are that were fulfilled at our Lord's first coming, this time we call Christmas. In Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. God prophesied through Moses saying, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. And then we can read in Acts 3 where Peter reminds us that this was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In Micah 5-2, we read of the place where he would be born. He would be born in Bethlehem. And we look in the Gospels and we see that indeed that's where he was born. In Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, we read where the prophet tells us that, that Messiah would descend from Jesse, the, the father of David. And that the spirit of the Lord would rest upon him, would somehow come down upon him. And we can look in Matthew 1 and the genealogical record and we can see that indeed Jesus descended from Jesse and we can look at Matthew 3:16 and we can read that after Jesus was baptized what happened the spirit of god descended as a dove upon him we can also read in numbers chapter 24 verse 17 that a star shall come forth from jacob and a scepter shall rise from israel the word star in hebrew is koshav and it means a blazing forth or a shining, something like lightning. It's going to come from, from Jacob. In other words, from the Jews, from Israel. And also a scepter shall rise from Israel. Well, we know that in Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, we read how that the Magi from the east, the Magi were the Persian king makers. Nobody became king in the land in those days unless the Magi, who were the priestly line of the Medes, as were the Levites of the Jews. Nobody could become king unless the Magi said so. And we read that the Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east. In the Greek, that is austere. That is the Greek version of the Hebrew koshav. In other words, they're saying, we saw the blazing forth in the east. We saw this lightning in the east. And of course, they would have known what it represented because they were descendants, ultimately, from the Chaldeans, the Medes, and the Persians, where Daniel had once been their chief, and undoubtedly Daniel had told them much about the coming Messiah. And so they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. And you'll recall in that story that the blazing forth disappears, which we know to be his the, the Shekinah, the glorious presence of the Lord. It disappears, and then later on it suddenly reappears, and it stands over the place where Jesus is residing. And let me remind you of this for a moment, because this is an important concept. And I've spoken on this before, and I'll just give you a hint of it, because some of you may not be aware. God, who is immaterial, would from time to time materialize Himself in the Scriptures. And whenever He would do so, He would do so with brilliant, dazzling, resplendent, Ineffable light, something the Jews would call the Shekinah. And whenever you look at Hebrew terms in the Old Testament, such as his presence or his glory, it would be ultimately a reference to his glorious presence that would blaze forth in his Shekinah. By the way, you can look down through the Old Testament and you can see this Shekinah blazing forth with Moses in the burning bush, you can see it leading the Israelites through the wilderness, a pillar of cloud by day and a fire by night. You can even look at his Shekinah, this brilliant, dazzling light that would hover over the mercy seat between the between the wings of the cherub and the Holy of Holies over the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle and even later on in the temple. In fact, the twelve tribes would camp in the wilderness in such a way as they could always face and see the tabernacle and they could see the glow of the Shekinah that would emanate from within. We see His Shekinah on Mount Sinai when Moses went before the Lord. And you recall that when Moses came down, the glow continued to emanate even from his face, so he had to cover it. You can see then the glory of God departing from the temple later on in the book of Ezekiel. It goes out and it goes into heaven because of idolatry. In fact, it left the temple and the city of Jerusalem in the very same stages that it will one day return. And for 400 years, the Jews were without the presence of God. The glory had departed, Ichabod. And then suddenly, on a hillside in Bethlehem, what do we read? Suddenly, the glory of the Lord shone round the shepherds. And an angel then announces the arrival of the light of the world that comes into the world. Suddenly, the Shekinah would be contained, now think of this, in a child. Emmanuel, God with us. The Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, we read in John 1.14 that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory. Glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. In John 1, we read that John the Baptist was the one who was sent, as he said in verse 7, to bear witness of the light. And in verse 9, he says, that was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. You see, friends, the radiance of His glory came through the babe. And later on, we can read in the New Testament that His glory shone like the sun on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus somehow, in a mysterious way that we cannot even fathom, peels back and opens up His flesh and the light of His Shekinah blazes forth with Peter, James, and John. In fact, later on, Paul even recounted his conversion in Acts 6:26-13. He says, at midday, along the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those who journeyed with me. So indeed, dear friends, back to the prophecies that I'm reminding you of. There was a Kosha. As Numbers 24 tells us, there was a blazing forth that came out of Jacob, one that was predicted by Balaam 40 years after the exodus from Egypt, literally 1400 years before it happened. And yet, isn't it sad that all these amazing prophecies that were fulfilled at Christ's first advent, what we call Christmas, Those prophecies that would glorify our sovereign God who promised them. For the most part, those prophecies go unnoticed. Most Christians, frankly, don't even know they're in the Bible. And when you remind them of them, they kind of say, oh, that's interesting. Rather than shaking our heads in absolute amazement and saying, thank you, God, that you are a sovereign God. That has ordained all things and decreed all things after the counsel of your will. And I can have absolute confidence that what you have said, what you have promised, will indeed come to fruition. Well, amazing prophecies. By the way, hundreds more prophecies that we could go through that were fulfilled at Christ's first advent. Prophecies that were predicted and fulfilled literally, precisely. Which, by the way, ought to tell you that the rest of the prophecies that have not yet been fulfilled should likewise be perceived as prophecies that will be fulfilled literally. Dear friends, don't fall into that trap of treating the prophetic literature as some allegory. That is a very dangerous thing to do. Because then suddenly you place yourself in a position of being the final arbiter of what is true. Well, we've seen now the promised gift and we want to come, I should say the promised light, and we want to come now and ponder the glory of this perfect gift. Now think about this. Here in this text, in Isaiah 9.6, the covenant making and the, the covenant keeping God, the, what the Hebrews would call the Hesed God, is now making a promise to rebellious Israel. He is once again now going to, to penetrate the darkness of death and he is going to dispel it with the, the light of life. By the way, a light which could never shine from the pitch black caverns of, of, of a human heart. A place where only the darkness of ignorance and death can exist. No, rather than that, notice the text here very closely. We read that a child must be born to us. A son must be given to us. Notice in the text, it does not say that a child will be born from us. Nor does it say that we will produce for ourselves a son. You see, friends, you must understand, light cannot emanate from darkness but only from the original source of light. And that, of course, is the light of truth, the light of God. Now, indeed, he was born, but he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. You see, he was God's only begotten son, meaning he was spawned by God the Father. He he was the unique one-of-a-kind Son. He was like His Father, His very essence, everything about His nature. He possessed all of the attributes of the Father. He was consubstantial in every single way. A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. Now, please understand, The child was not made. The child was not somehow created. Because the child, who was the Lord Jesus Christ, already existed. You see, He was was given. He was begotten by the Father. And yes, He was a child, but He was also a son. He was the son of David, but more importantly, He was the son of God. In fact Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3:16 God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son So the language of Isaiah is very important here This child to be born is the one of a kind son the one of a kind child one that must be given the unique child the unique son the son that is par excellence Because indeed, He is Emmanuel, God with us. What an astounding truth. Amazing truth. But we must also realize that that the gift of Christ and, and, and all those who would someday receive Him were promised literally before the foundations of the world, before time began promised by a God who cannot lie before time began. We don't have time, but you could go to Titus 1 and verse 2 and read that. And many other texts. By the way, think of this. When you celebrate this Christmas season, this time of great rejoicing, think that this particular season that celebrates the incarnation of Christ was all set into motion before we were even created. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 1.9. He speaks of God's own purpose and grace. Was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. In the Greek, literally before time began. Let me remind you of this again now. God's own purpose and grace. He goes on to say, was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. And you say, well, well, Pastor, what what, what is this purpose? Or what was this purpose of God? Well, we see the answer to that, for example, in Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 9. The purpose was to bring to light, the text says, what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things. By the way, what was the mystery? Well, it was the mystery of the incarnation of Christ, the son that would be born, the child that would be born, the son that would be given. So the purpose then was to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things in order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church. To the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places, by the way, that refers to the angels, both holy and unholy. This was in, in, in accordance with the eternal purpose, which he, referring to God, the father, carried out in Christ Jesus, our Lord. My, I wish I had time to break that down for you, but it's a staggering truth. That the purpose of Almighty God was set into motion before time began so that he could ultimately bring to light this great mystery that was hidden all through the Old Testament. This wisdom of God that now will be made known through the church, even to the rulers and the authorities, in other words, again, the holy and the unholy angels. This was in accordance, he says, with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Dear friends, don't you see this? This is what I want you to grasp. The glory of his promised light and the glory of his perfect gift was all ordained by God in eternity past. And then he brings the light to the world to glorify himself. And he does this through the church the pillar and the support of the truth. How are people ever going to hear these truths unless we preach it and unless we teach it? And by so doing, he manifests his glory even to the angels, both holy and unholy. By the way, this magnificent concept is also found in Psalm 2 and verse 7. And there we see how the poetic spotlight is shines at, at, at that particular time upon the the, the the father and the son relationship and the triune Godhead. And in that particular text, the father recalls his promise of a future Messiah king. And here's what he says. I will declare the decree. Isn't that interesting? In other words, I'm going to speak forth what I've decreed earlier. I will declare the decree and here it is, the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Once again, a reference to the birth of Jesus. And we know that because of what is said in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Beloved, here's the point. The preexistent Son of God was begotten by the Father in eternity past to come to earth as a child and as a son, his son. And all of this was prophesied some 700 years before it happened here in this text in Isaiah 9.6. Folks, I don't know what else I could give to you that would warrant any greater confidence in the infallible record of Scripture. And yet if we had time, we could see literally hundreds and hundreds of of prophecies that have been fulfilled. Child of God, I cannot fathom the power of God who doesn't just predict the future, but he ordains it. Think of that. And then he orchestrates all things to accomplish what he has decreed by the uninfluenced desire of his sovereign will. Paul tells us in Ephesians 1.11 that we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to His purpose who works all things after the counsel of His will. An amazing thought. Utterly inconceivable. But if that isn't enough, let's add to that the miracle of the incarnation. And again, this is the reason for the season. The miracle of the incarnation, to think that the Son of God became the son of man, fully God, fully man, that somehow, even though he was consubstantial in his essence, in other words, every aspect of his being, of his nature was identical to the father. Nevertheless, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And he was born as a baby. Folks, here we here we find, uh, at least for me, the limit to my ability to even conceive. It is utterly beyond my imagination that a child was born and a son was given. Charles Spurgeon has poignantly summarized what I'm struggling to say regarding the Incarnation. Here's what he had to say. Quote, The doctrine of the eternal affiliation of Christ is to be received as an undoubted truth of our holy religion, but as to any explanation of it, no man should venture thereon, for it remaineth among the deep things of God. One of those solemn mysteries, indeed, into which the angels dare not look, nor do they desire to pry into it. A mystery which we must not attempt to fathom, for it is utterly beyond the grasp of any finite being. As well might a nap seek to drink in the ocean as a finite creature to comprehend the eternal God, he goes on to say, a God whom we could understand would be no God. If we could grasp Him, He could not be infinite. If we could understand Him, then were He not divine. End quote. Let's notice what else the prophet promises concerning the child that was to be born to us. The son who was given to us in verse six, he says, and the government will rest on his shoulders. Well, now, obviously, this has not happened yet, but it will. By the way, the fulfillment of this verse can be found in numerous passages. We could go, for example, to Psalms two, beginning in verse eight. And there God, the father describes his son's kingship. And we read, ask of me and I will surely give the nations as thine inheritance And the very ends of the earth as thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt shatter them like earthenware. (laughs) You know, I cannot wait until the King of glory rules the nations of the world. Can you? My, what a day that will be. Go ahead and remove Christ from Christmas. But you will not remove Him from His throne. Someday the wicked politicians... The wicked rulers of the world, the terrorists, all of the things that are endemic to world political history, all of those things will ultimately surrender to the righteous reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible tells us that Jerusalem will be the capital of the world for a thousand years before the eternal state, and that Christ will rule from the throne of David. No more ACLU. No more... United Nations, no more petty little dictators with funny little hats torturing people, no more political correctness. During the millennial kingdom, we read that the Lord Jesus Christ will enforce his will with a rod of righteousness and he will protect the sheep of his pasture with a scepter of iron. And you know what? We're going to rule with him. Look at Revelation Chapter Two. In Revelation Chapter Two, we read something very fascinating, beginning in verse twenty six. It says, and he who overcomes, this is a reference to believers, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. This will be during the Millennial Kingdom. And he, referring to Christ, shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. Dear friends, whenever, whenever you hear the ungodly, Mocking the Christ of Christmas, whenever you hear of people scrambling to somehow accommodate the whims of political correctness, just remember this promise that the government, as Isaiah has told us, is someday going to rest on his shoulders. What an amazing thought. While you're in Revelation, look at Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11. We read more of this coming day. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. And again, this is a reference now to the second coming of Christ. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems, and he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven... Clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Folks, there's the raptured church, the redeemed church that will return with him in his second coming. We've been taken out some seven years prior. Verse 15, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh... He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Well, we've seen the glory of His promised light and the glory of His perfect gift. Finally, we see the glory of His preeminent titles. Four pairs of words, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. We'll just look at the first one here as we close this morning. There in verse 6, He says, And His name will be called Wonderful counselor. You see, Isaiah is saying that this child that would be born will ultimately possess four titles that describe his supernatural and glorious nature. And again, think of these when you gaze at the babe in a manger in a nativity scene. For indeed, all that he is can be summarized in these names. But first of all, he is wonderful. Literally means he is astonishing. He is magnificent, breathtaking, fantastic. You get the idea. Why? Well, for many reasons. Colossians 1 and verse 15, we read that he, referring to Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In other words, the prototokon in the Greek, firstborn, meaning the preeminent one, the superior one. He is the firstborn of all creation. It goes on to say, "For by him all things were created. Think of that with the babe in the manger. All things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, invisible visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Dear friends, indeed, he is wonderful if for that reason alone. But think of this. Although He is the Creator, the Sustainer, and the Consummator of all things, in His incarnation, He became a helpless infant. That is inconceivable. He was born in a manger. He was nourished at the breast of a virgin. A helpless child dependent upon His Father's care through The work of his earthly parents. And to think that somehow the one whose presence fills the entire universe, the omnipresent God, is now suddenly contained in this tiny little body of an infant. To think that the sovereign ruler of the universe will now become the disputed son of Joseph. Unfathomable, my mind cannot grasp the depth of such infinite condescension. This is a mystery of mysteries. And again, folks, for this reason alone, he could be called wonderful. But beyond this, think that this very one would later stand silent before his mockers, that this very one would suffer upon a tree, that this very one would bear the full fury of the Father's wrath to satisfy holy justice so that He could cancel out my sin and your sin and pay once and for all the debt on Calvary. What matchless love. Indeed, my friends, He is wonderful to me. And then to think that He would conquer death, He would rise from the grave, He would ascend to the right hand of the Father, and there He would intercede on my behalf and your behalf and make us partakers of the divine nature and make us join heirs with Himself. I mean, such thoughts beg language. Indeed, He is wonderful. But notice He is called Wonderful Counselor. And what greater counselor could there be? For He alone is the source of all knowledge, the source of all wisdom. And someday his supernatural wisdom will drown out all of the foolishness of man. Friends, please hear me. A day is coming when the word of God will be final. There will be no more debate, no more scoffing, no more ridiculous misinterpretations. All the mockers will be silenced. And You know, I have to confess here, I find great delight in knowing That someday, sermons such as mine, which are routinely the fodder of, of, of jokes and ridicule, someday the truths that I have been called to communicate to you will resound from the very one for whom I speak. I find great comfort in that. Not that in any way I need to be vindicated but that the glory of God will be vindicated. And someday all of the laughing and all of the scoffing will be over because the wonderful Counselor will sit upon the throne. Well, may I challenge you this Christmas season, all of us need to gather with reverence around the throne of our blessed Redeemer, for indeed He is a wonderful Counselor. And may I encourage you to meditate upon this amazing prophecy. And we've just seen a bit of it here this Sunday morning. But let's meditate upon this amazing prophecy, part of which has been fulfilled literally. The rest of which we await. Certainly, only his redeemed currently call him Wonderful Counselor. But someday the whole world will see the reality of that. And so this season, let's praise him for the glory of His promised light. Let's praise Him for the glory of His perfect gift and the glory of His preeminent titles. Let's pray together. Father, indeed, we are astounded when we stand before Your Word and we rejoice in it. We pray that these eternal truths will somehow motivate us to live in such a way that the glory of Your light that now resides within us by the power of your Holy Spirit, will refract through our lives in such a way that all people will be able to see that indeed we live in the light of your glory. We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information, or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.